0: The four things that I listed, are those part of the whole path?
1: Yes.
2: Yes, so the Sutta number one seventeen in the Majjhima uh the the English name for it would be the Great Forty. And that um the Sutta starts out where the Buddha is going to talk about right noble unification of mind with its supports and requisites. That's how it's phrased. So the whole object then is to come to a state of uh, right noble uh, unification of mind. Now, that unification of mind um, has different words to it in the Pali than uh, the actual word of uh, sama area Samati, which is the actual name of it, but that uh, what sama area Samati actually means is the mind is unified. And, and in fact, this is um, an important point. Uh, for Western Buddhism, that <laughs> the definition of the word samadhi is not concentration. And yet, that's the way that it started from the very beginning when translations were first started in the 1800s. Um, have you ever heard of the Polytech Society?
0: The Polytech Society?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that the Christian missionaries that you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's, well, the politics society now uh, is um, the society in London, and the greatest claim to fame that they have is they have the entire Tripitaka translated into English, but that most of that work was done by Riles Davies, I.B. Honor and Riles Davies' wife, uh, and that they, in fact, were Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Polytext Society now I assume is Buddhist, but the lexicons and the translations, enough, did quite a lot of damage to Western Buddhism. Um, A way of thinking is is that, in fact, Buddhism spread in the East by uh, monks, by noble monks. Um uh, we have a number of times that uh, we know of where uh, there was uh, Chinese. Uh, the Chinese came and spent a lot of time in India uh, right after the time of the Buddha and started doing translations. We also have a number of times when we know that bhikkhus have gone. Possibly the most famous one is uh, Bodhidharma. Uh, a bodhidharma, who went there uh, in, oh, 400 AD, 500 AD, that area of time, uh, giving uh, kind of a uh, rise of a new tradition uh, that was associated around Sha- uh, Shaolin and uh, Chan Buddhism. However, it was noble right from the beginning. In Buddhism the sense that was it was noble. it was it was noble in the sense that the monks did it. Um, the uh, Buddhism did not come to the West through Buddhist monks. It came it through came, the Polytech Society. It came to to the West through the Polytech Society and their translations and people becoming interested in it. But that the English language translations. Um, are quite problematic now uh, in modern times because people really do want to practice the teachings of the Buddha, and the sloppy translations that we have in English need some a few repairs here and there. And okay. one of
0: those is samadhi.
2: One of them is Samadhi, The other one, uh, one of the others, would be nibbana, and other. Uh, Words. There's a long list of them, a long list of words that are uh, poorly translated into English to the point of making not a lot of sense sometimes. An example of that is, um, you know, there's a product, or at least there was when I was in the United States 40 years ago, a product called um, Frozen Orange Juice Concentrate. Yeah. Okay. Did I tell you about that?
0: Yeah, the how, yeah. yeah, I forget exactly, but it's like the con- to make you have it to add awesome. water to it.
2: Right, to add <laughs> water product, to you have it. have to add water to it, it for it to be
0: the real thing. So,
2: so uh, frozen concentrated orange juice is not fit for drink.
1: No, yeah, concent- it's not very good to drink. I mean, con- I have tried.
2: Pardon?
0: I have tried, but yeah, it's not as good. <laughs> You have to mix
2: it's it up. Same, right. Um, and so, um, when one has unification of mind, which is the whole point of the Eightfold Noble Path, then the unification of mind means that the mind is noble. It's free from the hindrances, it's free from all of the things that would keep the mind distracted. Uh, and you can see how that directly fits in with the hindrances. For instance, if someone is, is agitated and worried, then their mind is not samati. It's not uh, a unified mind that in fact are scattered. If someone is in doubt, then the mind is scattered because they, they're not sure, is it this or is it that? But when all the doubt is uh, is uh, let us say settled down then the mind can be unified um a clear example of that is students when they're beginning to practice or they're uh looking around then they have doubt about what's the right practice and so they'll try this and a little of that and whatnot and they uh they don't have any unification of practice either
0: so uh, do the uh, so when, when we talk about the Eightfold Path, we follow the Eightfold Path in order to get unification of mind. Um, and to get there, to get unification of mind, we have to have the seven factors. I think you kind of touched that for a second, or is that, am I kind of uh, misremembering?
2: Actually, we could say that three of the factors, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, uh, when they are noble, right speech, right action, and right livelihood is an outcome of the unified mind, rather okay. than a cause
0: of it. Gotcha. So the, the unified mind brings about those qualities. Right. Gotcha. Yeah.
2: The unified mind, in other words, when the mind is noble, then, then it is natural for one to abstain from killing. That when one kills, that's because they're in a state of wanting something that they don't have. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Okay, they may want revenge. (laughs) (laughs) They may want to eat. Not sure exactly all of the different ways of looking at it. But we do know that when one is free from wanting anything, then we're unlikely to go and harm someone. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we want something, then that we're likely to go out and take actions to harm someone.
0: And is that because of, like, a, a doubt? Or, like, because there's, like, doubt present?
2: Yes. Yes. An, an example of that, not mentioning any particular names, but just using the idea of recruiting or proselytizing for anything including a religion so if someone is going out and knocking on doors and giving religious pamphlets and stuff like that that's that's not something that a noble would do one of a unified noble mind would not be out there uh proselytizing why would someone go out proselytizing is because they want something that they've been promised if you go bang on doors, then you'll get a better mansion in heaven or something like that. Okay. So yeah, it's there's more of desire.
0: There's like a seeking for an outcome.
2: Mm hmm. But when you already are satisfied with the outcome that you have, then we don't need anything.
0: And then you would All act out of knowing. All right. As opposed to like not knowing.
2: Mm hmm. So um, basically what we could say then uh, is that this unification of mind is kind of the goal and that part of the path is the outcome of that goal. And then the other parts of the path are actually those things which are skills to be developed. And when those skills are developed, they bring about this unification of mind. So these four factors, in fact, um, of the Eightfold Noble Path are then uh, the skills that are to be developed and reusing Anapanasati as the vehicle to do that. And so that's how Anapanasati... Now, of all of the various methods of meditation that have been invented throughout all of history, as well as um, within, let us say, later Buddhist literature about um, meditation, including the Basuddhi and the uh, commentaries and Abhidhamma and whatnot. They come up with 40 different meditations. And yet the Buddha only gave one, and that was Anapanasati. But, in fact, other meditations that um, were known at that time, either the Buddha experimented with them and then dropped using them, or he recommend people stop using them and start incorporating Anapanasati instead.
0: So and the other 40. That,
2: I, I'm sorry, what?
0: Oh, I'm sorry. The The other 40 you know, that
2: you're. It may be the Michael. other. Keep, there you go, keeps talking. Okay.
0: So the other 40, they're kind of like cultural or like there were things that were around during the Buddha's time or like kind of picked up. Um, I guess like he only advocated for like Anapanasati, but the others were just kind of like cultural things is what you're saying?
2: Hang on a second. My audio. Oh. Keep talking, if you will, so that I can hear something and play with oh, the yeah. audio.
0: Um, can you hear me now? Do test one, two, three.
2: I'm actually trying to hold the plug in. That's part of oh, the okay. audio problem here. Oh, yeah. no. And so I'll, I'll hold it with my thumb and see if I can keep you talking.
0: Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, great. Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess you you already said it, but, like, you were just saying, like, the other 40, like, Buddha didn't really talk about those. He just talked about Anapanasati. The rest are just kind of cultural things thrown in.
2: Mm-hmm. That's also true with... Um, the Brahma-viharas, that in fact, in the Anapanasati uh, uh, Sutta, uh, it has an introduction, and the introduction is is that the Buddha makes an announcement that he's going to have uh, a, a talk, and then a huge number of people gravitate to that talk. And so in the beginning of the sutta, it lists a number of teachers and uh, the number of students that they have, like some coming with 40 students, some coming with 60 students. Then he talks about it from the perspective of many of the people who are here have been uh, practicing correctly so that there are various stages of nobility. He then mentions that there are people here who are practicing jhana, and then he mentions there are those who are practicing the Brahma Viharas, and he mentions them in order of uh, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. They're a practice? I didn't
0: huh? know that. I thought I, the Brahma Viharas are a practice.
2: Uh, Yes. They, they are, but they were also, it appears, to be something that existed before the Buddha. That it was already a known practice. Um, but that the uh, the actual practices of uh, the Brahma can seem to be incorporated into the Anapanasati Sutta. Also, the Anapanasati Sutta is, it appears, to be directly designed to bring about first jhana. Uh, because of the items of the, um, uh, the list, there's five attributes to first jhana. Those attributes are to be found in uh, the Anapanasati Sutta and that uh the important ingredient is sati sati is in the anapanasati sutra in the name of it. it is also in the satipatthana sutra uh, sati is also the first item of the seven factors of enlightenment and sati is a factor of the eightfold noble Path. so you can see that sati actually um, takes center stage
0: in, could you explain sadhi one more time? Because I was a little he actually up.
2: means to remember. To remember. Okay. And in, in Western Buddhism, it is uh, translated as mindfulness.
0: So when I go to Wikipedia and it says like right mindfulness, that's referring to the right Sati, which means right. like remembering. Exactly. Okay.
2: Uh, You cannot be mindful if you're not remembering to be mindful. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, Mindful actually in the suttis refers to as investigation. That's the word that uh, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi chose in his translation.
0: Okay. It's an investigation?
2: Investigation is much more powerful than just mindful. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And so Sati and um, investigation are the two items uh, that first appear on the seven factors of enlightenment called the Sambojana. Now, we'll talk about those later. Uh, Right now, we're talking about the Eightfold Noble Path, where Sati, to wake up, we could also see that one's right view now is that investigation? We can think of it as kind of the overall view is we've got the view that it's better to get the mind cleaned out than it is to leave it dirty. That's the view. That's one's right view.
0: Okay. It's Another not, it's kind saying of way like, of
2: saying that right view is is that I would rather be in a state of peace and relaxation than in a state of frustration.
0: Okay, so it's that kind so like if I was engrossed in anger, then right view would be being like, well it's better to not be angry than to be angry
2: exactly so okay that would be one's right view and so that right view also has a bit of the quality of investigation in the sense of investigating is this anger or is this not anger
0: that would be the investigation okay so like we have a thought that may or may not be correct
2: Right so exact
0: investigation to kind of go so, to the roots.
2: then that one's right view in the sutta would be then correctly defined as um, the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, the power of investigation. It has the power also, of continuing to investigate rather than coming to conclusions. Okay, it's always got a little bit of investigation going on with it. Um, We don't come to a conclusion that I know this and I know that, but rather the latest information that was tested still proves it.
0: Okay, so... Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, the right view would be like, okay, there, there's like a, it's better to be, like, not engrossed in this whatever I'm feeling right now than the investigating it would be the Sadi.
2: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's especially true exactly for the mind. It is better to be uh, investigating what the mind is doing rather than just letting it go do its thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: An example of that would be Uh, if the dogs are sleeping on the porch, then there's nothing to do. But if the dogs are out barking in the yard, the human needs to go investigate why the dogs are barking. Is there in fact a stranger, uh, coming into the yard or is it in fact just a strange dog or that it's a friend and the dog is barking and there's no reason for the dog to bark. So that's an investigation.
0: That makes sense. Okay,
2: that actually works very well as the analogy for any time our own mind is barking to go check it out, to go find out what's really going on. That's what the investigation is—to wake up and look at what we're doing. Okay. So when we when we wake up and look at what we're doing, more than likely we will be in hindrance not necessarily but it's most likely one of the ways that i'm uh, uh, telling the students now based upon stuff that i've read from bhikkhu Dasa, is that the mind is actually not in in hindrances or in torment all the time it is in fact little children spend quite a lot of their time in joy um but as children grow up especially when they get into school we teach them to stop enjoying yourself and do what you want to do and do what the teacher tells you to do stop daydreaming and pay attention do your abcs and your one two threes and we do not care whether you like what you're doing or not so long as you do what you're told
0: yeah so like the natural state of the child isn't Necessarily to be like, okay, you got to go do the homework. It's like, well, I can, you know, be in joy.
2: So our natural state is actually then disturbed by our society. You could go so far as to say that the natural state of a child is disturbed by all of the rules that he's given by society. And yet it's quite natural for the child to take on those rules of society. In fact, not only is it uh, natural, it's um, instinctual. Mm -hmm. The instinct is basically the herding instinct, to go along, to get along. We're looking for safety. And so we do what we're told to do because that's the safer way out. In the, in, uh, for instance, if the child doesn't do what he's going to do, he's going to get into trouble and perhaps punished. Timeouts, spankings, rulers on the palm of the hand in the old days, um, uh, ostrac- ostracization, all of this kind of stuff then the child wants to avoid. And so he does what he's told to do.
0: So the hurting instinct is kind of where society able to be like, hey, here's the rules, like mm. these things will make you happy, or like this is how you be happy in the society.
2: That's, that's part of the fact that uh, much of society is a pack of lies. Now, that same mentality, then, you can see when it's time to, uh, uh, to vote or when it's time for the politicians to start talking. What they want is they want to get people to vote for them. There are two primary ways that, uh, that get people to vote for them, but in both cases, it generally has some lies built into it. One of them is by making the people afraid. That's the other isms. That's mm-hmm. the racism and, the, and those people and all of that. And the Republican party is quite excellent at uh, making people upset and angry and unhappy And then the Democratic Party, their job is to promise people things, Mm -hmm. to give you health care and to give you uh, uh, this, that and the other thing. But but uh, the Republicans are not allowed to about to allow the Democrats to do what they want to do. And the Democrats are not about to allow the Republicans to do what they want to do. And everybody knows that. So everything that the politician says winds up being a pack of lies, one way or the other. Now you have greed, ill will, and delusion. You've got the second noble truth. That is politics. <laughs> uh, so this politics <clears throat> uh, means that the, this hurting instinct or this greed... This instinctual stuff um, is how people are manipulated to get them into the polls. Because wise people shouldn't care about politics. We all know that it's all corrupt, one way or the other. It doesn't matter who you vote for.
0: So I guess one question, like uh, you're saying, we have this like herding instinct where we we want to go along with the crowd. That's not uh, is that a that's not particularly a feeling i guess like if it's an instinct it's kind of like uh i guess like one of the machines or something that causes the feelings
2: actually the primary underlying feeling in that regard is the feeling of fear
0: okay so it's like gonna there's a collection of feelings fears mm-hmm. that one it's like okay like if i don't do this then i won't then like i will be in pain right so i must go along with this
2: right Now, um, the four primary instincts that I learned about in school tend to follow along directly with the uh, four um, modes of clinging from the Buddha. I was just absolutely surprised when I saw that. I kept rechecking it and rechecking it over and over again. And then it came to uh, the conclusion that these four... Four primary modes of clinging, each one of them in turn will bring one to uh, one of the four woeful states. And that those woeful states that we go into are actually one of the instincts. So we are bopping along as a human being, and something happens, and we start to cling, and that throws us into one of these um, woeful states that is an instinctual um, reaction.
0: And what are the woeful states?
2: A woeful state, hell, ghost, uh, the animal world. And the lowly world of the Asuras, these are the woeful states. These are the places where Buddhists can be reborn. Now, the Buddha got these woeful states from the, the Hindus, but basically these woeful states are not to be reborn after the body dies. This is something that the mind will flip into very quickly. This is all... When we talk about rebirth, we're talking about something that can happen almost instantly.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Certainly within one breath.
0: So you're saying you can't be reborn into those.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's look at how that happens if we're going off in the uh, in, into that direction. Um, this is actually a topic that's more associated with the teacher Samupada as a topic, But they're all bound together because we are all just one human being, each one of us. And so all of these things kind of fit together. That's one of the beauties that I really like about uh, the teachings of the Buddha is is that everything fits really neatly together.
0: That's what it feels like, yeah.
2: And so... um, getting out of the um, these woeful states by just merely mentioning that, in fact, these woeful states are all known collectively as mental hindrances. And that when the mind is full of hindrances, then that's what we would call a normal state of mind. The normal state of mind that a human has is that the mind just wanders around and around and around. Now, we can train the mind to stay on a topic. One of the examples of that would be like coding. Programmers can get really, really focused in their their code, almost to the point that they can't even hear the fire alarm if it goes off. Because they're so focused. Or dad can come in the room and the kid don't know it because he's too deeply into his uh, coding or video game or whatever.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So, um, this this ability of the mind to really focus is there, but it is normally not uh, utilized. And that... um, Normally it takes a a topic like a video game or coding or something like that to get the mind uh, really focused. But we can do that in other ways also, sometimes appropriately and sometimes inappropriately. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. First, let's go back to Sati and recognize that the wake-up call is to wake up. To see what's going on right now in other words to wake up and do an investigation this investigation uh, uh, Anapanasati by the numbers uh, this is step nine of Anapanasati it has four numbers one to four is uh, for the body five to eight is the feelings five, uh, nine to twelve Um, is the mind and then 13 to 16 are the mental objects. And a lot of people have the idea that uh, we take one object and like the breath and that's the only object where in fact, oh no, we've got a whole bunch of different objects that we're going to work with. We're going to have a whole group of skills that we're going to be developing so that we can think of it like that we're going to develop skills so that we can con- learn to control the breathing
1: mm-hmm.
2: we need to learn to control the breathing because we need to have some kind of control in our life otherwise we're like a rudderless of a ship and so that's Once,
0: like you're the coding like that's that would, the
2: right okay but now we're going to use the breathing as um, as <clears throat> as our first object for control when we talk about first object of meditation it's not just that we're we're going to watch it let it do its thing but mm-hmm. rather we're actually going to pin it down that's what we mean by that and so if we cannot learn to control the breathing then we will probably not be able to learn to control the mind And if we can't control the mind, the thoughts of the mind, then we're not likely to be able to control the feelings. But if we can learn to control the breathing, then we can learn to control the mind. Eventually, we'll be able to control the feelings. Okay, so the mind may have uh, hindrances. In fact, the hindrances have the two qualities. Some kind of hindrances are based upon thought alone. But uh, the feelings, uh, the hindrances also have a feeling component. In other words, uh, the the feeling of um, doubt means that the mind is scattered around kind of looking for a solution. But really, if the person looks deeply, they will see that it's like an empty gut feeling. There's something missing. We have a, a feeling of loss. Also, uh, the um, hindrance of um, restlessness has also a feeling component. It's not just a mental component, but it has a a feeling component that, in fact, can be as strong as anxiety. Anxiety is nothing but a kind of restlessness. The
0: thoughts? So you say there's like sorry to sidetrack but you said there's like a there's a they can be like both a feeling and a thought are like feelings and thoughts different or like thoughts just like a, a feeling
2: actually we generally in our human way of living think of thoughts and feelings as different but in fact they're deeply interrelated okay <clears throat> they're interrelated in the sense that thoughts can affect feelings and feelings can affect thoughts The body can affect feelings, which then means that the body through feelings can affect the thoughts. And the thoughts and the feelings can affect the body.
1: But it's
0: useful to think of them as like two distinct things. Yeah, like I get get what you're saying. It's like, yeah, there's an interplay between
2: them. It would be more like a a rainbow rather than uh, distinct things. Mm -hmm. That one merges into the other. Gotcha. That the, that, uh, a, a body that is just a body that's a dead body and no feelings is just a body. But once the, the feelings come into the body, now there's something new with that body. That body has changed because it has the feeling or the ability to react and respond. hmm piece of wood you take an axe to it and a piece of wood is not going to react or respond to that other than what the axe itself is doing to the wood but if you take an axe to your leg that leg will in fact do a whole lot of stuff that the axe is not actually doing mm-hmm. okay like bleed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or right. um, okay. uh, go into great pain and so it jerks around and other things like that and uh, so we understand that the body and the feeling and the mind is a complex Mm -hmm. and that uh we cannot have the mind without the feelings We cannot have the feelings without the body
0: sorry just what but when you say feeling do you mean like sensation
2: um
0: uh, do you mean like if i prick my hand with like or like a needle or something is that feeling or like i guess when i was thinking of feeling i meant like you know, I feel anxious or like an emotion, but maybe I got the words you're, mixed up.
2: You're, you're pointing to the fact that there is a broad spectrum of feelings.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. I, and,
2: I yeah. and the broad spectrum of feelings generally has a quality of how much self or selfishness or how much I, me, and my are in there. For instance, if there is a sensation on the body and you see it as merely a sensation on the body, then it's just a sensation. But if we use words like pain.
0: Personalize it.
2: Now we're saying that it's my pain. okay, And so we're yeah. making it a whole lot more than just the sensation. Mm-hmm because we're adding this feeling and an emotional and mental component to it. Calling a sensation pain is uh, creating suffering, where the actual sensation is merely a sensation. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: By calling it pain, now we're also saying that we don't like it. So basically the feelings that we're talking about there is a um, an important point within there to look at, and that is the uh, the point of feelings that arise when something impacts us or contacts us, like a niche. The feelings that normally arrive are one of three kinds. The feeling of I like it, the feeling I don't like it, and the feeling of I'm not sure whether I like it or not, which we can okay. call fusion okay these feelings are normally ignorant most people don't know these feelings because they're quite subtle so we can see something and we like it and then because we like it and we don't know that that's what's going on then we naturally go to the next level of ignorance which would be i want it Now we're in clinging mode now we've actually got a real blown feeling going up. Okay. So I like it as a little tiny feeling. I want it as a big feeling. Then I got to have it. Now we're almost into neurosis. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I got to have it. We're driven by going and getting that object that we want. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Within the teaching of Paticca Samupada, we're talking now about the level of Vedana, and then uh, Tanha, and then Upadana. Now, Vedana is these three feelings: of I like it, I don't like it, and I'm not sure. Which then leads to um, Upadana and the uh, excuse me, Tanha, and the Tanha actually uh, has the quality of thirst. Or it has the quality of uh, longing for something.
0: Is that the clinging?
2: No. That comes next. Oh, okay. Okay. It's so like...
0: It's uh-huh. like a thirst. Okay,
2: look at my hands now. This is, this is the object and this is me. Mm-hmm. I like it. I want it. I'm clinging to it. Okay. The tanha is that motion. It's the going to. It's the... Um, directing the mind or the mind's attention uh, to something we can Mm -hmm. use the very easy English language word of wanting I like it I want it Mm -hmm. and then the actual clinging is Tanha uh, moves to Upadana which is taking so I like it I want it I take it Mm -hmm. that taking then is ownership
0: that's like kind of per- eyeing. That's like.
2: Uh, well, think about it. Ownership requires an owner. Who's yes. the owner? That's when selfishness comes in. This is the birth of the self. Until that... then, that doesn't exist. We can be completely altruistic until we want something, and then when we want something, then we start grasping and clinging, and once we're clinging. That's the self that does the clinging.
0: So is there like anywhere there's an I? Is there um, like clinging? No. Okay.
2: The reason for that is because of our language is built the way that it is. Our pronouns are such that we don't have a non-clinging I and a clinging I as a distinction. Okay. Now, surprisingly, in Thai language, they do. And so, uh, because you can think of it as very low-class language and very high-class language. Mm -hmm. And in very low-class language, that's when there's a real strong self. In in the Thai language, it's good. And Buddha Dasa talks about that a lot. Unfortunately, in English, we don't have that distinction in the language. So uh, in correspondence, or just for clarity, we sometimes bring personal pronouns in because it's confusion if you leave all the pronouns out. So if I start a message that says, or if a message is started that says, uh, there, uh, there is something here, is different than I see something here okay but not really not really this is just a matter of expression and it's built into our language so we have to understand that uh, within the context there's two different kinds of language there's ordinary language and Dhamma language <laughs> And that we speak in the ordinary or conventional language. That's just the way we communicate. If you start teach if you st- stood up in court and started speaking in Dhamma language, they wouldn't be quite able to follow what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because all of the pronouns would be taken out oh, in yeah. Dhamma language. Perhaps everything would be said in passive voice. And that there would be no reference to any individuals. It would just be events or process oriented. That's Dhamma language. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Okay. It's merely process oriented. So once the process orientation takes effect in the mind, you begin to see how often you use the word I. But in fact, it's a good um, um, kind of long-term habit to reduce the number of times that that the word I is used in conversation so that you begin to not refer to yourself but you begin just to refer to the process.
1: Yeah,
0: I guess, yeah, that makes sense. But I guess like what I was getting at is like, um, it feels like as I walk through the day, there's like a sense of I, um, and then like I go do things or like, um, I guess like, you know, I want to get a snack or like, I don't know, something like that. And it seems like that kind of kind of bubbles up and then, like, I go do the thing, and then, like, the thing happens, it kind of trickles, like, it dies down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I don't have a good question around there. But, yeah, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Like, you, you want to minimize, like, the the kind of, like, language of being, like, I do the thing, because then, like, you're kind of clinging implicitly a little mm-hmm.
2: bit. Right. So that actually it's kind of just a little wake up. That's just a little mm-hmm. bit of sati is to start Recognizing when we use pronouns.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so uh, back to the, uh, to the point about um, these hindrances are to uh, be seen and, and removed from the mind. So that, And we can define those hindrances uh, first by talking about that there's five hindrances, and we'll speak about uh, uh, them in detail later. But basically, restless mind, doubt, wanting something we don't have, uh, having to put up with something that we don't want to put up with, like an itch that we call pain, or um, a dual mind. These are the hindrances. When we say dull mind, uh, the word uh, that uh, had gotten translated uh, by the Christian authors that I was telling you about, they used the word sloth and torpor. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they got those words, (laughs) because no one uses sloth or torpor in modern language my whole lifetime. Not in the past 70 years.
1: Yeah, it's not a (laughs) common
0: way of describing anything.
2: Right, okay. But you can see drowsiness or sleepiness or tiredness. This is actually a hindrance for being alert and bright. And that this, um, this particular hindrance is best deal with by taking deep breaths. If we breathe enough, then that will get the mind more alert. Now, it's also possible that we've been working for a long time and the mind is actually tired. In that case, more breathing is not going to work. Rest is what's needed. But generally, uh, when the mind gets a little tired, then more breathing is useful for that. So this Anapanasati method then is uh, a full method to remove the mind of all of the hindrances, defining hindrances, anything that's going to keep you out of the state of mind that you want to be in. Most of us are in the state of mind that we're in because of conditions and habits. And so the conditioning will trigger the old habit. Something happens in the moment. Uh, the Buddha talks about this using the, the frame adventious defilements. Adventious defilements when means that they can find an advantage or if something can cause an opening then they will rush in hmm. so uh, the the idea then is to wake up to recognize that the mind is not in the state that we would prefer to be in that if we have a choice between being in the ordinary mind and being in a mind is satisfied we would choose the mind satisfied if Therefore, that's kind of our job now, is to get the mind into a state of satisfaction. And this is what Anapanasati is all around, all about. Uh, the word satisfaction, actually, uh, in the Pali, is referred to as the word sukha. Now, sukha is actually an opposite of dukkha. If we can get the mind into a state of satisfaction, it, by definition that way, is free from dukkha. And that happens on a regular basis throughout the day. When we were children, it happened a lot. Mm-hmm. Now it don't happen so much. So we need to actually train the mind to get it back the way that it was when
0: we were a child. How do we? And and so I think last time you also mentioned um, pity or pity. Pardon. I think last time you also mentioned pity. You were talking about like. Uh, Pity. and pity.
2: pity and suka
0: those are, are two... two
2: things that have the same qualities to it. The so how... of satisfaction, success, um, security, safety, comfortableness. all of those are the same in both pity and uh, uh, Suka. But pity has a whole lot more energy in it. It's a more energetic.
0: And so do you cultivate um, sukha first
2: um, or is
0: it kind of like a both both thing
2: since they're both close together we could say that uh, the distinction would be both the amount of energy and also the quality of success that's the major quality of, of pity is is that we feel really successful mm-hmm. And the success here is throwing the mind's hindrances out and coming into a state of satisfaction.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So it's kind of like it, it all kind of weaves together.
2: Yeah, that's the way to look at it. It all kind of weaves back together again. That's, in fact, the, the word poly, in Pali Canon. Pali poly is not a language. The actual language is Magati. Why do we call it poly? Because the poly actually means like uh, the weaving of threads or uh, a line of things. We use that word poly in the same way in the English language, like a polynomial, polyester, polyunsaturate.
0: Yeah, it's like woven. It's like blended. Okay.
2: So the word "poly" means a succession. Well, so does the word "sutta." The word "sutta" means thread. So when we say "poly-sutta," we could basically say "thread, thread." Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's
2: funny. But the "poly" actually is not the, the the language itself, but we refer to it kind of as the language. It's just that's how it's grown up. Um. But. Translating these words out of the Pali into English has been problematic now for too long. And that when we really understand how to use these words, then we can actually see uh, overall how the practice works. That if we have piti and sukha, the pleasure and uh, stability uh, and energy of the mind, then this is what's called first jhana. Now, the, the, uh, in fact, it says it this way, pity and Sukha born of the seclusion. And in this case, we're talking about born of the seclusion from the hindrances. We seclude the hindrances. And in fact, we seclude the world by sitting down in the meditation hall. That gets rid of a whole lot of the distractions. Hmm. The only distractions left then would be those that come up in the mind. Okay, so seclusion from these distractions uh, brings then the ability for us to go into a state of satisfaction and, and pity. And, and so with the deep breathing together makes the mind really fit for work. So we begin by practicing by controlling the breathing. By controlling the breathing, we've already started to control the mind. Here's how we're controlling the mind is because sati comes in and we wake up. And we recognize the mind has wandered away from the breath. So we come back and we take a deep breath. So we're already controlling the mind and the mind's uh, objects uh, as well as the breathing. So by doing this, uh, we're beginning to develop skill the skill of thinking the thoughts we want to think rather than thinking the thoughts that we don't want to think. mm mm-hmm. uh, Which means now we have the full intention or the full plan of I'm going to only think thoughts that I want to think, and I'm not going to think thoughts that are random. mm mm-hmm. This is what we mean by applied and sustained thought, that we can apply the mind to what we want to apply it to and sustain that. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Okay, so just merely getting into this state is a skill. The skill of coming into first jhana has the following skill factors, and that is sati. It has right effort built into it. It has right attitude built into it, and it has uh, mostly right view built into it. Now, this attitude is the attitude of a winner, the attitude of, I can do this. That's the most important point, is that quality of know that no matter what, I can throw those hindrances out of the mind and come back to a state of uh, pleasure, come back to a state of satisfaction.
0: And so the sixteen steps of anapanasati get us to the point where we can be in first jhana because we have gathered all the prerequisites to be in that state.
2: Yes. so we
0: have, we, we know we like we're in that state where we like know we can choose to have like right thought and we know that we can sustain r- that thought mm-hmm. or that.
2: And so the kind of thoughts then that we would want to have that both get us into this state and uh, maintain this state would be thoughts something like, wow, this feels really good. Aha, this is third noble truth. This is what it's like to be free from suffering. Wow, this is good. Okay, what a marvelous moment this is. These are the kind of thoughts that we'd want to have. And these thoughts have the quality of, Being here now, being in this present moment, the kind of thoughts that we have or the kind of language that we're using has to do with this current moment, knowing that stuff in the past is a hindrance, stuff in the future is a hindrance. We can't live in the future. We can't live in the past. All we can do is muck around in the past and find something wrong. And now we've got a plan, we've got a future. We gotta go fix what we found in the past was wrong. But this present moment is just fine.
0: Is that kind of the is is dullness where when we're like thinking about the past or the future and like we're not in the present moment, we're not able.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Okay, so we experiment with this and play with this. And we'll continue on a little bit more. We've just gotten, you know, scratching around in here. But we have mentioned some parts about feelings, uh, the three kinds of feelings and the four kinds of clinging and the four woeful states and the four um, uh, instincts. And we'll talk more about that. But the important thing is to get the mind really fit for work.
0: And that's what I'm doing right now is getting the mind fit to work.
2: Okay. Right. Yeah. That's what Anapanasati is all about: is to get the mind fit for work.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you.
2: And then the work is, is to see the Dhamma,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which we've already started talking about, and they're all interrelated.
1: Yeah.
2: And awesome. so this this is the way that I would recommend that you practice is with this. Getting yourself into a state of satisfaction.
0: Okay, so over,
2: I over and over again.
0: Get myself into a state of satisfaction, and I guess like the step, what I'm doing, I control my breathing. You said 20, you know, exhale like 20, 20 percent capacity or whatever, up to like 80 percent capacity full, um, and I'm kind of like looking at just like what expelling, um, expelling what dukkha or expelling hindrances. Mm-hmm. Um, redirecting the mind back. To, I see you, I, and out
2: it goes. Right, you start putting what in the mind you want to have in the mind.
0: Do I focus on anything? Do I focus on like you know the sensation of breath at my nose? I guess or like whatever. Or
2: I would say offhand that um, make sure that there is twice with each breath. That you make sure that you focus enough to see that I know that this is a long, deep in breath. Okay. And then so, the other one is to know that this is a long, deep out breath.
1: Okay. It,
0: yeah. And I guess takes. what I've noticed is like I get more awareness of my body. Like as this process goes on, like I get, uh, like I can notice more and like.
2: Wake up. Exactly. So there's a yes. lot of stuff that you can pay attention to. Then, with the body during this uh, 12 seconds that it takes to take this in breath and the out breath, one is the rise of the abdomen, the rise of the shoulders, the touch of the uh, the cloth on the skin, any air that you feel moving. That this is way the to wake up the body mm-hmm. is by taking these long, deep breaths. It helps really wake up the body. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah, I'll, I'll continue doing that, and I'll think about what we talked about today. I won't keep you any no longer. Thanks a ton.
2: Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you again, Cliff.
0: Uh, thanks. Have a good evening. Oh, we- oh, never mind. Pardon? I was just going to ask, should I just, like, ping you again in, like, a couple days or a week or so? Yeah, that will
2: be good. Uh-huh. Okay, great. great.
0: Thank you.